0: yale Podcast Network Welcome to When We Talk about Animals, a Yale University podcast about the questions animals raise about what it means to be human. I'm Jennifer Skeen,
1: and I'm Rebecca Morris.
0: At the beginning of his seminal work on conservation, A Sand County Almanac, Aldo Leopold wrote of his view of humans' moral responsibility to the natural world, quote, I do not imply that this philosophy of land was always clear to me. It is rather the result of a life journey. Today, we tend to regard conservation figures like Leopold and other giants like John Muir and Rachel Carson as a pantheon who penned a conservation scripture that reshaped our view of the natural world and pulled countless species back from the brink. Yet as our guest, award-winning science journalist Michelle Nyhouse, writes in her superb new book, Beloved Beasts, Fighting for Life in an Age of Extinction, these vaunted figures have their own stories, filled with victories worthy of celebration, shifting ideologies, biases, imperfections, and unfinished work, all very much shaped by the worlds they lived in. And these stories of how they loved, studied, hunted, preserved, and fought for animals, both locally and around the world, ultimately tell a much broader tale of how we view ourselves and the world around us and what ultimately it means to be human.
1: In Beloved Beasts, Nyhaus tells the riveting history and evolution of the modern conservation movement, She takes readers from the streets of Uppsala in the 1700s, where Swedish scientists and friends, Carl Linnaeus and Peter Artetti, devised the system of naming and grouping species that endures today, to the fight led by a rebel taxidermist to save the Great Plains Bison from extinction in the 1800s, to the successes of community-led conservation in Namibia over the past 30 years. Throughout, Nyhaus introduces a colorful and complicated array of characters, from famous figures like Rachel Carson to lesser-known heroes like New York socialite and amateur birdwatcher Rosalie Edge. All of these characters have stood at key junctures in the story of modern species conservation, a movement devoted, as Nyhaus puts it, to the preservation of possibility.
0: Beloved Beasts situates these individuals and their fights within humanity's own reckoning with its place in the web of life and the broader social forces, from the suffrage movement and scientific breakthroughs to the ignominies of colonialism and fascism that left their imprints on conservation and continue to reverberate in the field today. In this sweeping yet intimate portrait, Nyhaus forces a reappraisal of the shaping and future of our global fight to save the species that delight, inspire, frighten, frustrate, enrich, and ultimately share in our fate as occupants of a complex yet fragile planet.
1: Beloved Beasts is just the latest in Nighouse's two decades-long career writing about animals, climate change, and humans' complex relationships with the natural world. Nighouse is a project editor at The Atlantic, where she has covered wide-ranging topics such as the politics of wolf conservation to the preservation of scientific integrity in the face of government hostility. Her works have appeared in publications including The New York Times Magazine, National Geographic, and The New Yorker. Michelle Nyhaus, welcome.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
1: One of the many, many impressive things about this book that struck me is the incredible scope of the story you're telling. It's the history of the whole modern conservation movement going back to the very beginning, which is just an epic topic. And your book really does it justice and and tells the story of the evolution of the ideas and the figures in it so well. But I'm curious to start, you know, when you decided you wanted to write a book on the history of this movement, how did you decide where to start and what to include? (laughs)
2: <laughs> That's a great question, and I often joke that had I known how difficult it was going to be to, to represent the history of conservation in a reasonably sized book, I might never have started the project. <laughs> I might have been too intimidated, but it, um, it was really a, a joy in many ways, though, though a daunting project. It was a joy to put together a story that I had lived with or lived with pieces of for so long. Deciding where to start was actually one of the easier parts of the project because it wasn't all that long ago that human societies realized that human activities could actually drive a species extinct, could drive a species into oblivion forever. The idea of extinction of any kind wasn't clear to scientists until the beginning of the 1800s. And then... It wasn't until the end of the 1800s that people really grasped the idea that even abundant, physically large animals could be driven extinct through human activities. So I started the story, aside from a a small prelude with Carl Linnaeus, which you talked about, I started the story with that realization and how people responded to it, responded to the prospect of, of animals like the bison going extinct because of uh, wholesale commercial slaughter.
0: It really is pretty amazing just how relatively recently humans were not convinced that they were capable of driving species to extinction, which was really shocking to read. But getting back to the beginning of your book on, on Carl Linnaeus, I'm curious what propelled you to start with his story? Because it's not conservation per se. He, of course, created the taxonomic system to classify plants and animals that we still use today. But what was it about Linnaeus and his story that made you decide to start there before then launching into the stories of the modern conservation movement?
2: I wanted to start with Linnaeus because I wanted to show that the concept of species, which we live with since you know, most of us encounter in childhood when we go through a dinosaur phase. <laughs> um, you know, it's it's very familiar to us to the extent that we we take it for granted. It, the concept of species is is pretty slippery, and there's a lot of things about it. You know, while there while there is a biological reality to it, the edges of of species are are a lot fuzzier than many people assume. And and you know, species of course change over time through the process of natural selection. So I wanted to show the I wanted to talk a little bit about the human being who had really had really cemented the species concept in the minds of European and North American scientists and who had also created through his system of classification had created a a global language for talking about species that we didn't have before of course people have had naming systems for their local species for you know, since the beginning of time, since the beginning of human history, but Linnaeus was really the first to make it possible for someone on one continent to describe a species and have someone on another continent say, "Oh, we have the same thing here," or "We have something that's very close to that here," um, and for them to be be speaking the same language and be certain that they were talking about either the same or different species.
1: That was very interesting, and it's interesting later in the book when you tie it back into how this work that Linnaeus and his contemporaries undertook so energetically to name species has not fallen out of popularity now, but receives perhaps less funding and less attention than E.O. Wilson and other scientists who you write about believe it deserves, which I thought was really fascinating and something we forget about is that often people hear about the millions of species that haven't been discovered yet, but it's easy to forget. And I think that the, the story of Linnaeus really underlined why it matters that they have names.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean that as you as you say, there there are so many species that we haven't we haven't named, we haven't described. We certainly don't know how they're doing. You know, are their numbers going up or going down? Um, so there, there's a lot happening beyond our beyond our field of vision, beyond our known universe. And when Linnaeus was alive, there was so much energy devoted to naming species and, and classifying them. And, and Linnaeus was a hero in his time. You know, there were statues built to him. And <laughs> I'm sure that taxonomists today just laugh at the idea that there would ever be, you know, coins made in their honor or statues built in there, you know, to remember what they did. Um, but there, fortunately, there are still many people, for, professional and amateur, I should say, who are who are out there looking around for species that science haven't hasn't yet described. You mentioned William Hornaday, and this was one of
1: many characters in the book that I thought the story was just extraordinary and amazing on multiple levels. But for those who don't know, will you please tell us a little bit about the story of who William Hornaday was and what happened to the bison out West and and what impact Hornaday had?
2: Sure, um, Hornaday is so fascinating to me. Even though, in some ways, uh, he was a horrible person, he was he was a fascinating character because he he really did contain multitudes, as the saying goes. Um, he he was of all things a, a trophy hunter. Uh, in his twenties, made his living traveling the world, killing animals and bringing them, selling them for museum display. At the time, zoos were quite rare, and the only way that people could could see these these exotic animals that 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 they had only heard about the only way they could have any sense of of what they looked like in life was was to go see taxidermy displays at museums and so hornaday was a trophy hunter who who supplied museums and then he was also a taxidermist himself and he went to work at the smithsonian museum or the the institution that would become the smithsonian museum and when he arrived he came he found out that there were few, if any, uh, bison specimens in the museum's collection. And he started writing to his colleagues on the Plains for more, and they told him, well, there, there aren't any bison left. Uh, there are hardly any animals. And so his kind of paradoxical reaction to this news, he was, he was genuinely concerned about the fate of the species kind of unusually for his time. At a time when many people either didn't think it was possible or thought it was inevitable for the bison to come to to go extinct. Uh, They thought some people thought well this is just the price of progress. Hornaday thought it was a terrible travesty but he as I said paradoxically went to went to Montana and shot a couple of dozen of the the last remaining bison thinking well at least I can preserve this species for science and and maybe by by showing it to the public, showing its majesty to the public, I, I can raise some concern about its fate. So whether that was advisable or not, we can we can talk about. But he, to be fair to him, he did create quite a sensation with this bison display that he built in the National Museum. And eventually, he when he went to work for the Bronx Zoo, he uh, raised a small herd of bison in the Bronx um, on the site that that would become the Bronx Zoo, and he shipped them out to Oklahoma and let them loose on the prairie and many of the bison that we have today we have a fairly healthy population of bison in North America today many of those are descended from what are called the Hornaday herds these animals that are that are descended from that small herd that he raised in the Bronx so thanks to him thanks to his foresight we have the bison today we not only have the species but we have a fairly healthy population of the species The trouble with Hornaday and, and, you know, what makes him so complicated, one of the many things that makes him so complicated is that his reasons for saving the bison had, were all wrapped up with his sense of nationalism, with his sense that white masculinity was under threat by the industrialization of society and that the, you know, the opportunities for hunting needed to preserve and it needed to be preserved. And that also he he insisted that Native Americans who were of course devastated by the decline of the bison because they lost their source of protein and cultural strength, he insisted that they were largely responsible for the slaughter contrary to, to contemporary evidence at the time. And so there was a lot of racism wrapped up in in what he did and as I say in the book he was one of many people who in con- in conservation history who did the right thing for the wrong reasons <laughs> and the, the happy irony of Hornaday's story is that now thanks to the healthy herds that he helped found there's now a a tribal and first nations led effort to restore the bison in a in a more fully ecological way to the plains, um, to the plains ecosystem and and that to me is is that is one of the most exciting and hopeful things that's happening in conservation today. So uh, Hornaday's legacy is, is complicated and it has many dark sides, but there's also, he, he left us a legacy that that is proving to be incredibly important to us today.
0: Yeah. The story of the tribal led bison conservation was particularly inspiring, especially after reading about the, incredibly colonialist foundations of how the herds were initially preserved and at the root of a lot of the conservation movement. And I do want to come back to that, especially when we get to talking about the community-led conservation in Namibia. Um, But it was also very striking how you talk about, and this is exemplified by Hornaday as well, the hunting origins of the conservation movement and just how inextricable hunting enthusiasts, and the people who wanted to save and preserve the species were. And the story about how that started to get increasingly entangled until Rosalie Edge came along and and its evolution from there. And I absolutely loved her story. It was an amazing testament to how even amateur and citizen scientists can really change the world. And I was wondering if you could just tell a little bit more about her story.
2: Sure, I yeah, I love Rosalie Edge as well, um, and and my love for her is is much uh, less complicated and pure than than my appreciation for William Hornaday. <laughs> um, so as you say, Hornaday was one of many sportsmen, um, though he he grew to really despise hunting in his later years. But he was one of many sportsmen who who were uh, founding figures in the, in the early conservation movement. And these were mostly wealthy white men who, as I said, were, were sort of worried about the state of, of modern white masculinity and, and thought that they, they wanted to preserve the experience of hunting because that was, that was, uh, you know, gave, would, would give modern men a a little more spine, um, and that they, that they were in, in need of that kind of experience on the frontier. And, you know, at the same time, I think that their, their appreciation for these animals was, was genuine and they themselves loved being out on the plains and in the company of these animals. So it wasn't, it wasn't a a contrived appreciation. It just, the the roots of it were, were uh, based in ideas that we today would find pretty problematic. Uh, And They, these, these, uh, wealthy hunters, who I should say were also quite snobbish toward subsistence hunters. Hornaday, you know, as I said, was quite disparaging about the Native Americans who lived alongside the bison and really suffered from their demise. And, and that was consistent in the early conservation movement. There was a sort of elevation of, of sport hunting and a and a denigration of subsistence hunting. That was subsistence hunters were seen as the people who were really often really damaging these species um, by, by hunting them for food. And so the early conservation movement tended to be pretty cozy with gun and ammunition manufacturers. It tended to be um, quite conservative in the in the political sense of the word, as well as conservation minded. And I mean, one of the one of the interesting things I realized while I was while I was researching this history was that in the late 1800s and early 1900s, as the movement was getting established. Uh, women who had either been a part of the suffrage movement or had been, had their options expanded by the suffrage movement became part of the, more and more a part of the conservation movement and transferred their skills, their political skills from suffrage to conservation and started to make some noise within the conservation movement and say, look, we should be a little more ambitious. We should not be quite so complacent about saving species. We should, we should, um, start to save not only species that are interesting to hunt, but species that might be important for other reasons. And and one of those women was Rosalie Edge, who showed up uh, in dramatic fashion at a Audubon Society annual meeting in 1929 and said, what are you doing? <laughs> Why are you not uh, standing up for birds of prey, which many sportsmen at the time considered pests, even the bald eagle was considered kind of a you know, yes, it's our national bird, but it's it's also a bird that that you know is a scavenger and and perhaps you know eats people's chickens. We don't really like it. We don't we're fine with it being shot. And and her argument, which you know reflected the argument of some other ecologists at the time, was was conservation isn't about just saving the species we like. It's about saving all species. And her effort, not single handedly, but her effort had a big hand in, I think, broadening the ambitions of the conservation movement. And, and even at a time when, when ecology was just finding its way as a science, uh, making it much more ecologically minded and much more about what's good for the species rather than what's good for humans.
1: I loved the Rosalie Edge chapter as well for several reasons. One being that, as with the other chapters, you link her to all these other conservationists before and after her. And in doing so, it feels like there's not only is the idea of ecosystems and ecological relationships being what matters these a the individual species um, starting to emerge, but then simultaneously, you feel like very subtly throughout the book that this ecosystem of the humans involved is also emerging and they're all tied together. And so you talked about, for instance, how Hornaday served as a mentor and sort of encourager to Rosalie Edge, and then Rosalie Edge purchases... Hawk Mountain Sanctuary land where they were shooting migratory birds from from a cliff and turns it into a, a protected area where then the longest record of raptor population data was gathered that Rachel Carson then relied on later on in Silent Spring. And I'm I'm curious, was that an intentional choice or was it just a, a product of your research to, to see all of these ways in which these key figures were were tied together and
2: it was definitely intentional. And it, and it was one of the great joys of, of the research was, I mean, I can't say I, I discovered connections that nobody knew about before, but to to lay them out and really look at the, the family tree, so to speak, or the ecosystem, as you put it, of conservation and who was talking to who and who was arguing with who and who was being inspired by who. Um, that that to me was it was just such fun it was fun to to read their letters to one another and and realize that this is a multi-generational conversation that's going on and and that was one of the things I hoped I could contribute with this book because conservationists I think understandably don't look at their own history very closely they're always occupied with the next emergency and and it I think what they know about conservation history tends to be um about these seemingly isolated icons you know like Rachel Carson or Aldo Leopold we we think of them as as operating by themselves doing their great work <laughs> and when that that isn't really true and not to say that they weren't great people but they almost always didn't know they were great people when they were doing their work and and they were just doing what they thought was right and they were doing it in collaboration with a lot of other people known and unknown so just showing conservation as the tradition that it is was important to me and, and showing those relationships and, and those those exchanges was, was one way of doing that.
1: I found that very inspiring. And even going back to Linnaeus, and you paint Peter Artetti, who's a, the lesser known friend of Linnaeus and, and a fellow scientist who helped develop this taxonomy system that we continue to use, yet very few people have ever heard of him. I, I know I hadn't prior to reading Reading the book, and yet you feel so inspired. You feel like you know this person has made a might not be known to history beyond some small circles, but nonetheless has made this big movement, big impact on this movement for for years to come. I'm curious, going back to Jen's question regarding the historical and and modern as well ties between the conservation movement and hunters. Is this something that you see shifting today? It certainly seems like, it, in many ways, it, it continues. You write in the book about. Um, efforts in some places to sell sell trophy hunts to fund conservation efforts. So we see a similar systems in the United States, where state wildlife agencies are heavily dependent on sportsmen licenses for funding, or angler and fishing groups are involved in conservation. Is that something that you see as, as shifting? And if so, in what directions?
2: Yeah, um, I do. I. I see it shifting in a positive sense, in that I think the conservation movement is becoming and could could become a lot more aware of the important, real, and potential contributions that subsistence hunters and farmers could make to 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 conservation. I mean, ideally, conservation should be practiced by everyone, right? (laughs) And so the the community led conservation efforts that I looked at for the book and that I've looked at otherwise. I think are a big step forward in that they make it possible for people who are directly dependent on other species for food and shelter and livelihoods they make it possible For them to reduce the short-term costs of conservation of which there almost always are short-term costs conservation is almost never free or almost never a win-win situation there are costs in the short term so community-led conservation efforts help reduce those costs and also help people who live most closely with these species realize some of the long-term benefits of conservation so they make the, the costs and benefits a little more equitably Distributed, I, and I think that's just an enormous positive development for conservation, and and has the potential to really broaden the movement beyond what it essentially remains today, which is a, a pretty elite special interest. And as far as the participation of of hunters in other ways, I think one thing that that non-hunting conservationists don't often realize, and and I wish. Uh, did have more understanding of is what exactly what you mentioned that most of the state wildlife programs in the US and I'm sure elsewhere are are supported by receipts from hunting permits and because hunting is is somewhat less popular than it used to be a lot of those programs are struggling for funding and those programs are are incredibly important because that's where we manage our common species that's where we do some of the the quote-unquote preventive medicine for conservation, where we we keep species from becoming endangered in the first place, and it's it's not as uh, it's not as dramatic um, or as as pressing perhaps in the, in the short term as these emergency efforts to save species from extinction that we're always hearing about in the news. But it's it's at least as important, if not more important, to the larger project of conservation that we that we do do. That kind of preventive medicine,
1: right? So I suppose that's then a question of whether, absolutely, we need to fund those projects, but how? And currently, the system is set up with with the hunting licenses, but perhaps it'd be better to shift it.
2: Mm-hmm. Yes, or add. I mean, if if hunting truly is something that North Americans are not going to do that often anymore, yes, we do need to find a new, uh, an additional, at least, funding source. For these projects. And I think uh, hunting and fishing groups are often understandably a bit a bit miffed that non-hunting conservation groups don't understand that they are literally funding some of the most important work that gets done in conservation. So I, I do think a, a more sophisticated conversation needs to take place around who's paying for conservation and when and how.
0: Another thing that the conservation movement is grappling with is, of course, the, the legacy of disempowerment, colonialism, and discrimination that lie at the root of it, and that the stories in your book really illustrate in stark and harrowing ways. Of course, your book came out during a time of intense reflection more broadly on institutional racism following the murder of George Floyd, and a reckoning globally in the environmental community with some of the key figures like John Muir and, and John James Audubon, who have Very dark parts of their past, not to mention people like William Hornaday, who made great contributions to the world in his work with bison, but who, at the same time he was putting the bison on display in the Bronx Zoo, put a Congolese man, Otabenga, on display in the monkey enclosure how do these roots continue to define the conservation movement? How do they manifest today? And and how can conservationists working today take the lessons and stories your book lays bare and use that to chart a better, more equitable future?
2: Yeah, yeah, it's, um, it's, it's quite a striking pattern. Um, It was something that I knew about. I mean, I knew about Know, the, the individual sins of of conservationists of the past and I knew it was something I wanted to acknowledge in my history I wanted to to tell a history that was celebratory but also took in the full picture of of successes and failures and oversights but as I worked on the book it became clear to me that that this is this isn't just a few isolated individuals who are who are have, have um, unfortunate blind spots. This is a recurring pattern in the conservation movement. And it's something that I think conservation does need to to continue to grapple with. It's starting to grapple with it, but I think that needs to happen more. And that's, of course, I should say, not to imply that, that the practice of conservation is racist in any way. Conservation is something that we all need to practice for our survival, our individual survival and our, the survival of our species, uh, not to mention other species. But It is, And and it's not to say that all conservationists are racist, far from it, but there is, in every generation, there seem to be a few prominent people who have a very prescient grasp of how complex other species are and how complex ecosystems are, but they have a kind of um, very limited sense of the complexity of our own species, and this may be because of their biological backgrounds, or it may be because of their personal experience, or, you know, I'm not going to psychologize, but I think that it, that is what the thread that ties all of these people together is that, is that lack of appreciation for the complexity of their fellow humans. And the way that that's expressed itself is, you know, in horrible cases, you know, really just flagrantly awful cases, like the one you mentioned of, of William Hornaday thinking it was just fine to capture a, a Congolese man and, and quote-unquote display him in a cage in the Bronx Zoo monkey house for two weeks, to much more subtle, almost unintentional um, assumptions that, for instance, parks and reserves were always uninhabited places before they were parks and reserves, that they, that they have no human history. Or, or just the the assumption that humans are only a destructive force uh, on the planet that they they can't play a positive role in conservation. I think that's a pretty pernicious idea that social scientists have proved over and over again that humans can play a constructive role in conservation. But the conservation movement as a whole hasn't really grasped that. And I think that 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 does come from that same root of not really appreciating how complicated humans can be. And not and you know in its worst expressions, it's not. It's like Hornaday not understanding the complexity of a certain group of species or a certain group of humans, excuse me. But in its, in its more benign, but still counterproductive cases, it's, it's just having this overall sense that humans are, are all the same. They're always going to be the way they are, that human behavior can't be changed. And it's always going to be for the, you know, it's always going to be destructive to the rest of life.
1: You talk about in the second half of the book, the emergence of the idea of tragedy of the commons in the 1960s, Garrett Hardin's idea, and how this too shaped approaches of Western scientists in areas like Africa. And then talk about how Eleanor Ostrom, this other political scientist at the time, had a very different view and that the the tragedy of the commons, of course, saying that when there's a common resource, everyone will act in their own rational self-interest and use as much of it as possible, such that it's ruined for, for the community as a whole. Whereas Ostrom said, in fact, that's, that's not necessarily the case, and that if you have in place much more complex you know, systems of monitoring and boundaries and predictable processes for resolution of conflicts and, and so on and so forth, that in fact, these resources can be preserved and, and saved. And I'm, I'm curious if you'll tell us about your experience in Namibia and seeing that alternative to the Tragedy of Commons in, in action.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I loved learning more about Eleanor Ostrom because the, the embrace of the tragedy of the commons by the conservation movement is is passionate and, and deep. <laughs> and uh, nomad- Eleanor Ostrom won the, the Nobel Prize in economics for her work uh, years ago, but you still find often in casual conversation, people invoking the tragedy of the commons as an explanation for all kinds of environmental tragedies. And uh, I found it very encouraging and and eye-opening to go to Namibia, which has had a community-led conservation, a system of community-led conservancies in place for about 30 years now. And uh, these, these conservancies are led by community members and they have various responsibilities, including setting the hunting quotas for their areas, in consultation with the National Conservation Department. They uh, hire game guards who are usually community members to patrol the area for poaching, and they also have some latitude in how they deal with individual problem, quote-unquote problem animals, elephants that might be trampling their crops or predators who might who might literally pose some physical danger to people because they they do live alongside these animals, and every once in a while there is an animal who, who goes rogue, so to speak, and really does uh, pose a serious danger to people or or to their livelihoods. And so over time, these these community-led conservancies have have had some very tangible results. Probably the most prominent of which is that they've brought the their work has brought that. The population of black rhinos in the area, which was down to almost nothing in the 1980s, has brought it back to a pretty healthy population. And they have managed to protect it thus far from a very serious wave of of rhino poaching throughout the continent, which is still going on. Their community game guards have have managed. The the system that's been put in place of, of these community game guards has managed to resist the effects of that wave of poaching without militarizing, as so many other places have had to do, you know, giving poachers guns and, and really almost creating this this low-level war between poachers and rangers. That has not had to happen in, in these community conservancies. And I, uh, it was inspiring to me to, to travel just through this very remote place where, where people had very few um, resources and and lived you know in many ways very arduous lives and and to attend some of their annual meetings and and sit as people argued with one another about about how they were going to manage their local species and to realize that, wow, people have taken all this trouble. You know, it was I, I visited Namibia at the time of a pretty deep drought and it was a hard year. People had taken the trouble to attend these meetings, sit down uh, and spend hours Talking with their their fellow community members about how they were going to manage these species for the long term, and it was clear, you know, even though these these discussions were sometimes messy and and it didn't start on time or what have you, it was clear that the commitment was there. And I I left thinking I've been to so many meetings in North America and elsewhere where people have had lots more time and you know more more resources and and more education, formal education, and, and I have never seen this kind of understanding of the long-term implications of the actions that they were taking, and and I've never seen so many tangible things getting done. And um, so that was, it was really moving to me and, and very much a demonstration of, of how important it can be to return some of the local authority that was destroyed or disrupted during colonial times in Africa, how important it can be to return that authority to these local communities, because it has practical advantages. And in, in, as I said, reducing the, the burdens of conservation and increasing its benefits, but it also is empowering. And it, I think it, it was clear from talking to people that they took these they took the, the authority that they had very seriously and and treated it with respect and were very happy to have it. It was meaningful to them. And so I, I think that that contributed a great deal to their willingness to go to some trouble to ensure the future of their neighboring species, even those that perhaps didn't have any practical value to them or or in fact caused them some trouble on a regular basis. They they didn't want these species to go extinct and and the community conservancies made it possible for them to make sure that those species were with them for the long term.
0: That story was particularly uplifting, especially at a time when it's hard to find hope in stories about what's happening in the natural world. That one was one that really illustrated the capacity of people to surprise and transcend expectations and the lack of predetermination in in how we as humans behave and treat the world around us as Eleanor Ostrom talks about and how Garrett Hardin's tragedy of the commons is not a predestined conclusion, but people have the capacity to rise above it. Like this community did actually hunting far fewer animals than they could have under the quota. And I loved the anecdote you talked about where these are are animals that don't necessarily, they don't necessarily always get along with. There are life and death struggles that they deal with, whether it's lions eating domesticated animals, or competing for scarce water resources, or elephants trampling crops. These are still animals. They feel compelled to save and still love as their local species and part of their world and identities.
2: Yeah, I found that very uplifting too. And I, I think that, you know, in North America we can learn a lot from those examples because I, I think we we are so polarized in so many ways and perhaps You know, I don't want to be too Pollyannish about how we, you know, the possibilities for resolving some of our conflicts around other species. But I do think that when and if you can set some of these politics aside and ask people, do you really want this species to go extinct? Do you really want to have a hand in it not being here for your kids to admire um, or you know know is out there in the wilderness? I I think most people, given a truth serum, (laughs) would say. Yeah, I, I want the species to be around. I, I just don't want to be solely responsible for the for all the problems that come with preserving it. I, I, and I, you know, I don't want government in here telling me what to do. I want to have some say in the process. I don't. Again, I don't want to be too Pollyannish. These conflicts are deep and have gone on for generations. But I couldn't help but think that there is that all is not lost. There, there's we do have a common concern for other species, um, and if we can figure out how to access that, it could take us a long way.
1: In in addition to writing extensively about animals and and wildlife conservation and and all the issues that arrive at the intersection of humanity and our interactions with other creatures, you've also written for years and way before it was a mainstream topic about climate change. Um, And this book really takes the conservation movement up until the last few years, really, where climate change has emerged as a front and center issue that conservation groups like World Wildlife Fund and Nature Conservancy and Audubon and others that you show the founding of in this book are starting to really pay attention to and focus on. And I'm curious if you considered putting climate into this book more at the end and why did you choose to mention it only briefly? But then also, um, I've, I've loved so many of your stories in recent years about the climate movement, including the wonderful cover story you wrote about the pipeline valve turners in the New York Times magazine. And I'm curious vis-a-vis, you're you're obviously deeply informed about that climate, the modern climate movement as well, how you see these two movements overlapping or coming together or perhaps butting heads and what they look like in relief with one another.
2: Yeah, great question. And and I, I do sometimes laugh about the fact that I, for as long as I've covered the climate movement, I I then ended up writing a book that mentions climate change only at the very end. <laughs> um, and I, that was in part deliberate because, well, it was deliberate in a couple of ways. First of all, because conservation, organ- I wasn't interested in writing about the history of the conservation movement and the conservation movement doesn't get concerned about climate change until relatively late in its history. So um, it made sense to me to wait until the end and I also that that felt right to me as just in terms of uh, the proper emphasis, because I do feel that what gets forgotten, it has been forgotten a little bit in recent years, is that if we solve climate change, we still haven't solved conservation. We still haven't saved biodiversity. Uh, many of the species, that are in danger today are not yet under direct threat from climate change they they certainly will be if we don't if we don't figure out how to clean up our act but but what they're suffering from what what may drive them to extinction in in the coming years and decades is the same thing that's always driven species to extinction since we started doing violence to other species which is we are destroying too much of their habitat and we're we're shooting too many of them and and um, poaching too many of them and just over exploiting individual species. So I wanted I, I think it's important for climate to be part of the conservation movement, but I don't think it can be its sole focus as important as it is because there's still there's a lot of other nearer term threats that the conservation movement still has to deal with and that are very complicated and, and need a lot of attention. I do, that said, I, I am so heartened and happy about the growth of the climate movement and especially the participation of young people in the climate movement in recent years. And I, I sense that there's a, especially among younger generations, there's a bit of, a bit of a sense that, oh, conservation is so last year. Um, <laughs> you know, that conservation and, and perhaps I think that perhaps part of that idea comes from the fact that that the racist history of conservation is reasonably well known. And understandably, young people don't want to be associated with a movement that has a racist history. And so one of my hopes with this book is to show, yes, that history is there. It's an unavoidable part of conservation history, but the project of conservation is still really important and has so many overlaps and parallels. With the work that's being done on climate change, that i I hope that the movement, the climate movement writ large and and the youth movement in particular, won't see conservation as just you know, their parents' movement <laughs> and something that they need to move beyond because it's still so important. and and I was I was actually heartened to see in uh, President Biden's climate order, that he issued very early on in his term that that conservation and land and ocean preservation was a very prominent part of that and that to me is that's that's the direction of the future it's it's all uh you know dealing with climate uh and 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 dealing with conservation dealing with the, the nearer term threats to other species they they can and should be dealt with as a whole as a and and i think There can be a lot of synergies there and should be.
0: I loved your recent piece in Scientific American about the 30 by 30 efforts to protect 30% of lands, waters, and oceans by 2030, which is President Biden's conservation commitment, I think you were just referring to. And your argument there about how this effort needs to move beyond traditional colonialist conceptions of conservation to include people in the picture in all their complexity particularly the leadership of indigenous peoples who have been living on and stewarding this land for millennia, and how empowering indigenous leadership of the land actually benefits both humans and the natural world. Of course, study after study has shown that where indigenous land rights are strong, climate and biodiversity are both better protected. And your portrait of the community-led conservation in Namibia was a powerful illustration of this, I absolutely love that you put out this piece at a moment when we are rethinking how to approach conservation in this era of urgency, but um, also reflection and, and in a way that that breaks free of those legacies that have haunted conservation for so long. But of course, your book was also very timely in another sense, which I don't think you could possibly have intended, which is that it came out about a year into the coronavirus pandemic which has really transformed how many people view nature. Of course, many people have been seeking refuge in our backyards and beyond as we've been holed up in quarantine, but it's it's also illustrated just how connected we all are, and not just with each other, but with the health of animals and ecosystems around the world. Have you seen any impact on attitudes toward conservation as a result of this past year? And how has that been reflected in the response to your book?
2: Oh, that's a great question. I, I don't have a strong sense of that, uh, perhaps because we're all still you know, relatively holed up and isolated from one another um i i mean i like many other people who think about climate and conservation i was really struck by the this sudden behavioral change that that the human species managed to affect <laughs> um but in in march i even though you know of course there are a million problems and inequities with our global response to the coronavirus but it was quite amazing that this threat emerged and all of a sudden people made dramatic changes in their daily lives, you know, all over the planet <laughs> within the space of a few weeks. And I think it it was encouraging for, for people who know that, you know, some major behavioral changes need to happen for uh, us to deal with climate change and for us to achieve meaningful conservation. I think that knowing that it it could happen uh, gave, gave a lot of people hope. And of course, I think there are few more dramatic minder, reminders of our connection with other species than the fact that we can be infected by the same diseases and that, that the incidence of those diseases is greatly increased if we, the more we exploit those species um, for our, our own selfish ends. So, you know, I, I hope the pandemic will be <laughs> a, a, both a cautionary tale and an example of what's possible. But I'm not sure. I think we are collectively all still so much in the crisis that it's hard to tell what the effects will be. I do. I've, I've been heartened by the response to my book in the sense that people do seem to be understanding it for the kind of understanding the message of it. Um, as I as I hoped, which was that it's a message of measured hope, <laughs> and that that it it's a message that says we have accomplished a lot, and we have the opportunity to co- accomplish more. That whether or not we're going to do that, we I don't know yet, but but we have the the knowledge, and we do have the ability and potential to do more in conservation. We don't have to give up yet. <laughs>
1: As you say in the beginning about hope, you know, you write that it's a word that you're going to use sparingly in the book, in in part because the emotion is not what motivated many of these conservationists who you feature. Mm -hmm. And you write they were motivated by, quote, by many other things, delight, outrage, data, but they had little confidence that the work they were moved to do would succeed in rescuing the species they loved. They did it anyway. And I loved this and I loved the book because it really did, despite the fact that you didn't want to use the word hope, leave me if not hopeful, with a much greater sense of agency Mm -hmm. of people. Clearly, I mean, just realistically looking at the situation that faces animals, there's not a lot of reason for hope long term. But nonetheless, the book had a profound effect on me because I felt so grateful and so moved to know that, you know, we have whooping cranes and we have bald eagles and we have elephants and we have bison and we have all these animals because people in the conservation movement, albeit sometimes for bad reasons, fought for them and how much richer our world is today as a result. So while it might not, hope might not be the right word, but I do, I do feel like the book is incredibly powerful and, and I think it will have this effect on, uh, on young people, as you were saying, who are more focused on climate perhaps now than biodiversity and conservation uh, as a whole, which I think is an accurate characterization from, from my perspective, but, but I think it will be, it was certainly very inspiring to me in terms of thinking that, you know, this work, this work matters, even if in a, <laughs> a few mm-hmm. hundred years from now we're extinct too, but um so I'm very grateful to you
2: for that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We don't know. Yeah, we've got a chance. We don't know the end of the story, um, or whether there is an end. So, yeah, my hope was to, to maybe trick people into feeling hopeful by telling them that I wasn't going to talk about hope. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I do, I do think that the that's one of the rewards of history is is the opportunity to look back and say, wow, we actually have a lot of. We, you know, we're we're always focused on the future. We're always focused on what the terrible things that might happen and that are happening. And there are good reasons for that, but taking the time to look back and saying, wow, thanks to these insightful, flawed people, we have so many amazing animals that we might not have otherwise.
0: One question we'd like to close with is just if you have any recommendations for our listeners on books, films, or or other works that have inspired you or, or had a major influence on your work. Are there any that come to mind that you would
2: want to share? Oh, uh, lots. Let me see if I can pick out a couple. Um, (laughs) um, Well, I love my friend Elena Passarella's book, uh, Animals Strike Curious Poses, which is a literary exploration of uh, animals that for one reason or another have come to acquire names, uh, animals that that have given that people have given names to have become famous for one reason or another it's a series of essays and and uh, I I turn to it often Uh, I would recommend uh, if people haven't read the work of Aldo Leopold or perhaps only know him through uh, through some of his better known quotes I would recommend uh, that people check out his work and because he's a beautiful writer who's who's a whose thinking and, and style, I think, really stand up, um, to, to, uh, the, you know, the 50 years that they, they have really stood up to the 50 years or so that they've, or more that they've been around. Check out the work of Eleanor Ostrom. She's an academic and, you know, her work isn't, isn't as, as, uh, as graceful or fluid as the other couple of people I mentioned, but uh, she she really should be better known. And I think she holds that she wasn't a conservationist herself, but she holds the key to the future of the conservation movement.
1: Well, Michelle Neuhaus, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thank you. It's been a delight to be here.
1: Thank you, too, to Ryan McAvoy, the Yale Broadcast Studio, and Daniel Block for their work on this episode. When We Talk About Animals is supported by the Law, Ethics, and Animals program at Yale Law School. We would love it if you would subscribe to When We Talk About Animals on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts. Write us a review and check out our website, whenwetalkaboutanimals.org, where you can find out more about Michelle Nighthouse and her work. Thanks for listening.